So it's, it's funny how when you bring a table and a chair out to stage, you can literally feel everyone's brain working as to what is he doing. Um, but good to see everyone once again this morning. Uh, hopefully, it's good to see everybody again back. Uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed their blizzard. Um, I wish I was talking about the delicious Dairy Queen ice cream treat, but I am not. Uh, hopefully everybody survived. Uh, we were hearing stories of, of needing help shoveling. I snowblowed three times last Sunday into Monday. Apparently, I was, I was listening to the news, and apparently it snowed for 52 hours straight in Minnesota, and um, I was talking to my in-laws who were in town uh, this past weekend, and they said, uh, I was like, man, we got like 20, 19, 20 inches right at my house. We, we busted out the tape measure, and I was like, I can't even imagine what my in-laws got who live in Brainerd, which is the snow capital of the universe, and I was like, how much snow did you guys get? And my mother-in-law goes, well, we only got four and a half inches, and I... I immediately became distraught and angry and actually had to leave the room for a second because I was just totally expecting not that. And I don't know why it made me so angry, but it's good to see everybody again. Uh, hopefully we've been enjoying the sunshine. I have been enjoying standing outside as much as I can and listening to the snowflakes scream as they die. Um, but uh, hopefully we are enjoying. May we never be ungrateful as it gets warmer that it's too hot in Minnesota because God could give us what we got uh, in June. And so uh, let's never be ungrateful. Um, so, but as I was thinking about this, I've been sitting on the this message for two weeks, and I don't know if that's a good thing um, or a bad thing. We're going to see how it goes. I've had 14 days to, to, to simmer on this and process this, so um, hopefully it's a good thing. I, I just don't know. Sometimes I get a little excited um, if I have too much time uh, to sit on something. But if you have a Bible this morning, uh, we are in week two uh, of a series that we kicked off two weeks ago called This Is What We Do. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 5. Uh, specifically, we're going to be starting in verse 27. And last, and two weeks ago, what we talked about as this is what we do, um, kind of explaining the history of how we got here, because I had a history teacher in high school say, um, if you're wanting to know where you're going, you have to see where you've been. And, and honestly, I think is if we want to know why we're going where we're going, we have to know where we've been. And so uh, two weeks ago, we kind of explained the history of what makes Motion City Motion City and why we started and what we existed for. And we talked about this really cool opportunity that we have been praying over and we have been working towards, and that's this idea of a permanent space um, that's off of Bloomington Avenue and, and uh, 41st. Um, no, uh, Bloomington and uh, 41st. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so we've been talking about this space and dreaming about, man, what can we do, God? What have you called us to do? Not so, so we can simply have a wide reach, but what can we do to have deep roots in this community? Because, man, here's what I believe, and, and I really do believe this. I believe that the community of faith that exists as the local church should be the easiest place for people to find connection and find belonging. And for whatever reason, we have found that to be almost the exact opposite. I believe that the local, the local faith community, the local church should be the easiest place for people to find belonging and connection and relationship. And as I, as I think about, man, why is this so different? What I've come to the conclusion is that I, I'm not going to talk about you, I'm going to talk about me. I have set up unique qualifiers of what it means to belong. 
I have so easily fallen into the, into the trap of the church exists for a certain type of person and that certain type of person that I have, whether I have subconsciously or, 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 or consciously built the church for is for people who are it's easy to get along with. For people who really like um, the things that we talk about, the people who really, if I were to, to give any question, you would know that the answer is Jesus. Infallible. Seven days, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, like that the, the church exists for, for people who, and, and, and as we have been thinking about and dreaming about where God is leading us next, the thing that, that the Holy Spirit has really been speaking to me is, is it doesn't matter, Steve, what your qualifications are. What matters is what mine are. And so for, the, for this morning and for next week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the specific qualifiers that Jesus establishes for when it comes for people to belong. Because again, I believe that this is a place of belonging. I believe that this can be a place where it doesn't matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you're involved in, no matter what you're planning on doing after, this should be and this can be and this will be a safe place for us to experience and engage with God, with one another, for the sake of seeing not simply behavior modified, but hearts transformed. And so Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, we're going to read this, and then we're going to get into it because I have got to leave in 25 minutes because my kids have a dance recital that I cannot be late for. So Uh, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, this is what the Word of God says. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. Now that's in capital letters and italicized and underlined for a reason. He saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I love the way verse 31 starts. Notice that these guys were talking to the disciples, but Jesus answers them. I love that. Jesus is kind of an eavesdropper. (laughs) in the best way possible. And so they're asking the disciples, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus answers them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Have you ever found yourself in a situation or a circumstance where you very quickly determined and understood and came to the conclusion that you were totally unqualified for the task at hand. Anybody ever been there? Where you found yourself instantaneously underqualified. Have you ever found yourself in the opposite direction? Have you ever found yourself completely overqualified for a task at hand? My hand is up simply for example, not for response because I feel like maybe I'm overqualified to do nothing. But, but most of the time, I find myself on the, on the pendulum of being completely underqualified for circumstances and situations that I somehow find myself to be existing in. And not that it's bad, not that I've overstepped maybe where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing, but the, the task at hand is completely 
bigger than who I am, completely beyond my skill set, completely beyond my base of education, completely beyond my area of understanding. I mean, I live in a house with three girls. I wake up unqualified. Chelsea's back there, and she laughed. That was funny. Um, one of the things that um, is one of the more uncomfortable things that I, I have to, one of the more funny, at the same time, most uncomfortable things, being a pastor, is oftentimes I get phone calls or emails based on uh, giving people references. And uh, one of the, the, the when, now, when, when I get the opportunity to give a great reference, it's the most fun thing ever, because this is usually how the conversation goes. This is how it concludes. This person, I would put my ridiculously large salary on the line that if, you, if they are not 100% everything you're looking for, I'll give you my salary for a year. Because, that's, because when, when people are qualified, it's so fun to put people in those positions. But then there's those conversations and I've had them numerous times, um, from my seven years of being a youth pastor to being a young adult pastor to being a, a staff pastor to be going back to being a youth pastor and now being a lead pastor. The, the, the conversations that are uncomfortable is when you have somebody that you have to give a reference for and they want to be a youth pastor, but you know they hate teenagers. And then there's those uh, uncomfortable conversations of why are you doing this if you hate teenagers? Or I want to be a kid's pastor, but I, I really don't like kids then why are you doing this? I, I really don't, I want to be in ministry, but I don't like people. Well, let me understand, if you don't love people, if you are not passionate about people, you will want to smash your face against a concrete wall every day for the rest of your life because ministry does not exist for what I'm doing right now. Ministry exists day in and day out to come alongside people. And I love what I get to do, not because I get to preach, but because most of the time I've got some of you yahoos sitting in my, in my living room until t midnight or one in the morning. I love it. But I think each of us, like we raised our hand, have, been found, have found ourselves in moments where we feel completely unqualified. And the difficult thing that I have to come to the reality of as I, as I study and as, I, as I, I, I'm really big into sociology, it was part of my major in school. I love reading books about sociology and generations and everything. I just love everything about what makes up the human condition. And one of the things that I've, come to understand specifically in the church is um, although this should be the easiest place for people to connect and to belong most of the time if not every time we see people not come because they feel for whatever reason they are unqualified to be here for whatever reason in my life I felt for the longest time I felt like I was unqualified to bring my cares and concerns and my situations and circumstances before a holy God. And, 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 and I, I didn't feel qualified or I didn't feel worthy to connect with God. And, and, and oftentimes in many of the conversations that I have with people and many of the conversations that I've had with myself in my head is that, man, we, we simply exist for behavior modification. Man, if I invite somebody to church, then what they're going to do is they're going to basically say, then you need to change the way you behave because once you change the way you behave, you're going to have a space to belong. But let me, if, if I can just say anything, if you hear anything, anything from today, may it be this. We are not about behavior modification because we believe that Jesus doesn't simply change behavior, but first he transforms the soul. And when he transforms the soul, our behavior follows because we have been altered. We have been changed. We have been transformed. Our behavior follows the transformation. 
Jesus, as um, we find in this story, as we read, as we've read in Matthew chapter five, we see Jesus ultimately going against the status quo as he is somewhat in the habit of doing. Jesus, uh, if you don't know, is the savior of the world. Uh, Jesus was sent to earth by his dad. And his dad gave Jesus a very simple assignment. There was just one criteria to Jesus' life and his purpose. And God said, son, I'm sending you to the world to save everyone. I'm sending you to the world to save everyone. And that was the point of Jesus' life. Not that in one foul swoop he would save everyone in history, but what Jesus did in his life is he made the availability of salvation, the availability of right standing with God. He made it so much more accessible, but God sends Jesus with a very specific, very big uh, assignment. And what Jesus does, although I believe that he could have done it on his own, does something very profound. Jesus assembles for himself a team. Jesus assembles himself a justice league. Jesus finds people to come alongside him. And as we read in this story, we are about to come across Jesus's number four draft pick for his all-star team. And it's this guy named Levi. The first three that were called were fishermen, Simon, Peter, James, and his brother, John. And all of a sudden we come across this guy, Levi, who would go be, later be known as Matthew, whose gospel uh, begins our New Testament. And the Bible says that Jesus comes across this man, Levi, at a tax collector booth. Very similar to maybe the one that I'm sitting at. It's starting to make sense now why he's sitting at a table. Just a little bit. And so the question is, why is calling of Levi such a profound thing? Why is it such a big deal? Why does it deserve to be in the Bible? Well, to, do, to understand that, we have to understand who Levi is and what a tax collector is. Because in this time frame, a tax collector, sometimes I think when we think of tax collectors, we think of like the IRS, right? Like they send you a letter every now and then. Or maybe they show up at your door, or maybe, or, some, or, or maybe you think of, maybe if you get a little bit behind on your credit card payments, anybody ever done that? And you get that phone call from Visa, from that very nice lady on the phone, and just reminding you? Well, in, in Jesus' time, tax collectors were not like these people where you got a letter or a phone call. What tax collectors were back in the day, where they were actually almost something that you would, you would contribute to the, the 1930s mafia. Uh, tax collectors were the most hated community of people in every city, in every town, in every place they were. These were men who were despised because what tax collectors could do is what they would do is they would sit at a table and as people were walking by, if they had goods in their hand, a tax collector could stop them and say, hey, did you, did you pay taxes on that purchase? And the person would say, yeah, I paid tax, I got this, and, 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 I, and I paid, this was the, the amount of my tax. And a tax collector, no questions asked, could say, well, I want you to pay three to up to five times more of the taxes that you paid. And the per there would be no way of getting out of it because tax collectors usually rolled with Roman soldiers. And to argue with a tax collector would be to argue with the business end of a spear. And so what tax collectors would do is they would ultimately steal from other people to line their own pockets so you can understand why they're kind of detested. You can understand why they're hated. But, but, but specifically Matthew, Levi, 
See, he's a tax collector. He's the type of person who steals from his own people. He's not sent by Rome. He is recruited from his community. And so Levi is hated almost greater than the Roman-issued tax collectors because Levi would sit and he would steal from his neighbors. He would steal from the people that he grew up with. He was hated and come along with being hated. Sometimes I forget that, man, when people are so severely hated, they're also severely lonely. And so I see Levi being a very hated and at the same time very lonely individual. As we read in the scriptures, uh, the, 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 the Pharisees say, well, why do you, they had a whole classification under themselves. They said, well, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners were glad that they weren't tax collectors. Sinners, people, like let's say you had a murderer. He goes, well, at least I'm not a tax collector. I'm fine with being this. They had a classification all unto themselves. But the one thing that we see from how quickly Levi stood up and followed Jesus is that no matter how much money he stole, no matter how big his house was, no matter how heavily he rolled into communities, what Levi could not buy and what he could not steal was purpose. What Levi could not buy and what he could not steal was a sense of belonging because tax collectors are liars. They are thieves. And so very quickly you would learn that your only friends are other tax collectors who are liars and who are thieves. So you ain't throwing house parties. You are not throwing get-togethers because you could be robbed blind by the people who you so closely associate yourselves. And Jesus reaches out to this guy. And it, le- and, and, so, and it leads me to wonder, ask the question, why would Jesus start with the worst when the mission that he was on needed the best? Why would Jesus start with the worst when he needs the best? We see Levi stand up and leave everything from two words. Like, I can't get my kids to respond to anything using two words. And you have a grown man with position and power who gets up from everything and follows Jesus after Jesus simply says, follow me. To understand why this is so important, we have to understand the art of the invitation. See, in the Jewish educational system, as Levi had grown up in, there were three levels of education. The first one was for young boys aged 6 through 10. And for boys ages 6 through 10, what they would do is spend, they would spend their time and they would memorize. They would end up memorizing what we would call the first five books of our Bible, the first five books of our Old Testament. Six-year-olds through 10-year-olds, they would spend their time memorizing these five books. It was in Jewish, it's called the Torah. And can you, and so at any point, you could walk up to a seven-year-old who was in the process and say, hey, you know, you, right, could you quote for me? Leviticus 2, 13. And without even thinking, the seven-year-old boy could, could quote Leviticus. I have a seven-year-old. This is amazing to me. This is profound to me. That you could get a seven-year-old to understand and memorize and then just at throwing things out, recite. And so that would be the first part of their education. And the second one would be from ages 10 to 14, where ultimately these young boys would memorize the entirety of our Old Testament. Memorized. Not just quick recall, but memorization so that no matter where they were, no matter who they asked, they could quote when asked. And then... 
once they got that down, then they, there became the art of the question. And the third level in, in, in the Jewish educational system was these young boys, they would be trained to answer questions with questions. This was the rabbinic way of, this is the way rabbis would communicate the religious teachers of the day. They would, they would, most of the time we say, well, if someone asks you a question, you want to give them an answer, right? That's how we've been trained. Because if someone asks you a question, you need to have an answer. Like, where is the coffee shop? Well, the coffee shop is down the road and to the left, and it's two and a half blocks down. And, well, you can, you can choose one now on Cedar because there's Caribou on the left if you're heading towards the mall, and now there's Starbucks on the right. You can do that, or you can just stop at Super America and spend a dollar. You could do that too. So there's three real options. No, what, what, what rabbis would do is, they, well, where's the coffee shop? And the question would be, well, why do you need coffee? They would learn to answer questions with a question. And oftentimes you see in the New Testament, Jesus would be having conversations. And it would say the Pharisees or the teachers of the law would begin to question Jesus. And oftentimes Jesus wouldn't an- would never answer them with a straight answer. He would answer them with a question. Oftentimes I think we get, to the, we get to the understanding that Jesus is the one who has all the answers. I just think Jesus is in the business of asking better questions. And so these young men would learn about their history, about their heritage, they would learn to answer questions with the questions. And at the end of all of it, if you were the best of the best, there would be a rabbi, a teacher who would come. And they weren't simply looking for somebody who had all the answers right. They were looking for somebody who could best identify with who they were, with who they are. They were looking for someone who could replicate them. They were looking for replacements so that when they died, there wouldn't be any sort of blip in the system because this person who has been following them since the age of 14 has so quickly and so closely identified with everything about who they are, the way they view the world, the way they view the scriptures, that they would find themselves. And so what they would do is a rabbi would come, and if you were the best of the best of the best, a rabbi would come up to you and he would give you a two-word invitation. The rabbi would simply look you in the eye and say, follow me. And these young men would get up and identify so closely with their teacher, so closely with their rabbi. Uh, oftentimes, you know, understanding the way, that's why uh, what, the way that they view the world, the way that they view scriptures most historically would be considered a yoke. That's why when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's saying, hey, you know, you've, you've grown up and you've understood there's a very complicated system. And, and, and when it comes to religion, there's a very complicated system when it comes to understanding who I am. And Jesus is saying, you know, we're going to leave the complicated behind because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to wrap up the entirety of the Old Testament into two very simple things. What I need you to do is I just need you to love me. And because you love me, I need you to love other people. My yoke is easy. It's not complicated. Love God. Love others. My burden is light. Love God. Love others. This was the most prestigious invitation given to the best of the best of the best. And Jesus extends it to the worst of the worst of the worst. Most of the time, if you were one of these young boys who didn't get this invitation, what the rabbi would tell you would be another two-word invitation. It would simply just be, go home. You spent from six years old to 14 trying to become worthy, trying to become qualified. And someone responds to you and just says, just go home. 
oftentimes just going back to what dad did, just repeat history, just fall in line, just do what's expected, do what's routine, just, just go home. And, and, and so we see Levi being the recipient of that type of response. And we find him at a tax collector's booth. And we find him ripping off his friends and his neighbors, the community that he's known. And Jesus offers him the two most prestigious words that he had been longing to hear since 14. I mean, as, as, as I think about it, what is Jesus up to? Because again, I would be looking, I would be trying to steal church people from other churches. I mean, that's the way my brain would naturally go. Like, if we want the best, then we need the best. And so we're going to go to the big, the big churches, and we're going to try and convince church people. And, and Jesus goes, no, 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 what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the place that no one would expect potential from. I'm going to go to the place that no one expects purpose from. And I can see this scenario playing out where Jesus walks up to, to Levi. He says, as he's walking by, he says, follow me. And I can see Levi responding very quickly with just this, me? And I can see the community responding with, Him? Because again, Jesus, remember, you're supposed to be saving the world, right? You're supposed to be on a mission to save humanity, right? So, so, we, we, so this is what your purpose is. Why are you starting with him? Levi's so confused. Community is so confused. And I think what, what Jesus would say is, here's the deal. If I'm going to save the whole world, I have to start with him first. And in one second, Levi gets up. And I don't think Levi understood the implications of what that would mean. Because the truth is, because Levi got up from his table and left everything to follow Jesus, it gave you the opportunity to get up from your table and follow Jesus. It gave me the opportunity to get up from my table and follow Jesus. It's giving people an opportunity to get up from their table and follow Jesus. And in two words, two words, Jesus flips the script and now everyone's welcome. Now everyone's welcome. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what you're involved in. It doesn't matter what mistakes you made in the past. It doesn't matter that you don't deserve this. In two words and with one guy getting up now, in one second, everyone is welcome. Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to close the gap between your worst and my best. Uh, the invitation is made to get up. And, um, and one of the things that I think is so profound, because the invitation, this, the same invitation that is extended to Levi is actually extended to everybody. But the uniqueness about this invitation is that it doesn't allow, no matter what, what table you find yourself sitting at today, the invitation does not allow you to bring your table with you. You don't get to keep your table with this type of invitation. Um, the Bible says that Levi gets up and he leaves everything. But how often am I in the habit of hearing and saying, oh, oh, okay, Jesus, hold on. And I try and 
bring my table with me. I think there's moments for some of us where we wonder, man, how come I'm not feeling as close to Jesus as I want to be? How, I'm not, how come I'm not feeling as close to Jesus as I used to be? Because sometimes I think that what's keeping us from being as close to Jesus as we want is the table that we put in between the two of us. And I think there are so many people who are trying to follow Jesus so closely while holding and gripping and trying to keep their table, everything on their table. And Jesus is saying, you know what, follow me and, and, and you don't get to bring the table with you. You get, to, you get to leave the table behind. And I think so often, I think in, in, in this world and in modern day Christianity, we kind of have this, we get these mixed signals, this understanding of, well, you know what, I can do what I want and God's grace will cover me. And here's the reality, God's grace, yes, will cover you, but I'm not living, I don't want to live my life simply expecting God's grace to cover me because I'm living a life responding to the invitation that Jesus called me out at my worst. And because Jesus called me out at my worst does not give me the excuse to continue to live my life the worst. We sang this song this morning, Jesus paid it all, and Jesus paid everything. And I am so easy to be in the habit of saying, okay, Jesus, I'm glad you paid everything, but I'm only going to give you something. I'm only going to give you the things that are comfortable for me to give up. I'm only going to give you the things that, that, that seem a little easier for me to let go of. But again, I'm always going to find my way back to this table because I become so comfortable sitting in this position, facing this direction, experiencing these things. And Jesus is saying, man, I have got a life so much better for you than a life that is positioned behind the table. I have got a life and a purpose for you so much greater than the table that you occupy. If I, if I can ask one more question before we, before we wrap up this morning, and the question is simply this. If you were to look back at your life with you at the driver's seat, how has that worked out for you historically? And I know for me, my, my answer is I, I, I always look to my highlight reel, which is very small, and say, fine. Some things have worked out fine. But historically, with me at the driver's seat, see, my perspective and my, my prerogative is different. Because I want to get where I want to go. When I want to get there. How I want to get there. And oftentimes, many times, if not every time, Jesus' directions are different than mine. I think we, we get lost in this idea that Jesus is very concerned with us being happy. And I really don't think that Jesus cares if we're happy. I think his greatest concern is our holiness. See, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate of happiness being situational. I'm a huge uh, advocate of that. If you're building your life to be happy, then you will live the most disappointed, schizophrenic-esque life that you could ever live because happiness is circumstantial, it is situational, it is fleeting, it is cheap. But when you 
connect with the one who can make the best decisions for your life, although they may look different than how you chose. Because again, remember, Levi had power, he had position, he had money, he had prestige, he had all that. But the Bible says because of a two-word invitation, he got up and he left everything. There was no fixing. It was literally everything on the table, and I'm getting up and I'm following Jesus because there was something about the invitation. There was something about the eyes of the man who called him beyond the table that said, I know what you're leaving is big, but what I've got for you is better. I know it's going to probably be difficult, probably more difficult than you even imagine because here's the deal. It got really hard for the disciples, but following Jesus was worth it. The question that I need to leave you with is following Jesus worth it? Is leaving your table worth it? Is the table that the people that you and I interact with every day, do we believe that Jesus is more important than their table? Because here is the truth. The invitation is open to everyone, but the RSVP will cost you something. The RSVP will cost you something. But the life that Jesus calls us to, the invitation that Jesus invites us to, truly, 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 is greater than anything you could walk away from. And so we say at this church that we are a place to belong. And I believe that. And that is what we are trying to build. That is what we are in the process. This is, if, if that is something that we do, this is what we do. We create space. We want to create space for people to come and find belonging and have an opportunity to respond to the invitation. I mean, I, I, just in my mind, and i got to wrap up like now, but in my mind, I see this church being filled metaphorically with tables. Left. Because Jesus is worth following more. Father, I just, uh, God, this perplexes me. This confuses me because, uh, God, I know who I am. (laughs) I know who I am. I know what I do. I know my tendencies. I know my, um, I know the things that I, I get so quickly drawn into. And, 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 and God, you, you invite me to be a part of your team. I, I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed by this. But God, I'm grateful. Father, I pray. Father, would you just do something in our hearts right now Holy Spirit, would you do something in our hearts right now to transform the way that, you, that we see people, the way that we see the world, the way that we see opportunity? Because, God, I just so often I'm, I'm looking for the wrong thing. I'm looking for people who weren't like me. And yet, God, you continue to place people in my path who are exactly like me. And God, help me to see what you see. Help me to see people the way you see people. Help us to just be reckless with the invitations. God, would you help us in this process build a place 
God, where everyone's welcome, no matter what. Not simply again so that we could have a big church, but God, so that we could have an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. God, help us. God, for in this moment, even right now, for those of us who are still sitting behind tables, Holy Spirit, would you just bring up the tables that we're sitting in front of? Would you bring them to our attention? And Father, my prayer for each, each person, my prayer for myself included, that we would recognize the table and God, we would get up from that table and we would follow you. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for your love for us. You love us so, so well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen, guys. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next week as we wrap this series up. Depending on if it snows or not, I don't know. But we'll see you guys next week. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the week. Uh, God bless, and we'll see you.